feel free to have a seat as we uh, transition from worshiping through music to worshiping through the preaching of God's word. This morning, we continue in our sermon series on uh, the book of 1 Kings. And so I want to invite you to read our passage with me this morning. It'll be 1 Kings chapter 12. We'll begin in verse 25 and read through verse 33. You can follow along in your copy of God's word. Uh, This will be on the screens behind me as well as the message map that you should have received on your way in the door. Again, that's 1 Kings chapter 12. We'll begin in verse 25 and read through verse 33. It says this. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Penuel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods. Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the eighth month like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel, he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that it is all we need, that we we walk into this room with so many, many questions. God, and that here in this book, we have everything that we need to answer those. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll be with Pastor Kevin as he serves you and brings our message this morning. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Stephen. And thank you uh, for being here today. As Stephen mentioned, we are in a series uh, on the Old Testament book of 1 Kings uh, called A Royal Mess. Um, And so if you're new here today, when you came in, you should have received a bulletin. On the back of that bulletin, uh, you'll find a message map and that that will help guide you uh, through our series. And while you're locating that, let me just take a moment to welcome those who are in our overflow room. Or if you're listening by podcast or you're watching on video, we want to welcome you as well. It was uh, in 1969 that Frank Sinatra recorded and released his famous song, My Way. It became an instant hit in the United States and in Europe, and in fact, it still holds the record in the UK for remaining in the top 40 for an astonishing 75 straight weeks. 
Now, if you're on the younger side in this room, you may be wholly unfamiliar uh, with this song. Uh, The song is essentially someone who is older looking back on his life and saying, hey, I may not have done everything right. I may have broken a few laws. I may have disappointed some people. Maybe I made some mistakes, but there's one thing that can be said. I always did it the way that I wanted to do it. I did it my way. The writer of the song was a musician uh, named Paul Anka. In an interview about this song, he was asked, what was your inspiration for writing this particular song? And he said he looked around and noticed that in newspaper articles and in magazine articles, everything was me, 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 me. And he said, we are living in the me generation. And he said, so I wrote a song that fits perfectly with the fact that everyone around today, it seems, only looks out for their own needs and desires. They don't care about the consequences of their actions or how it affects other people. Back in 1969, he said, I look around and everyone just wants to do it their way. So what is the point of me telling you about the history of this song that for some of you is now stuck in your head? Um, Here is why. As followers of Christ, every day we face this tension. We face a decision. Will we do it our way or will we do it God's way? And regardless of what Frank Sinatra sang, the more I do it my way, the more regrets I will have. And the more you do it your way, the more regrets you will have. That is what we will see in the passage uh, that Stephen read earlier. It will be our guide for us this morning. But before we jump back into it, let me give you just a little bit of background on the history of Israel leading up to this passage. Israel began with the calling of Abraham in Genesis 12 to go to this land that God promised to him. Abraham went there, then Abraham had a son named Isaac, then Isaac had a son named Jacob, then Jacob had 12 sons. There was a famine in the land, Jacob and his 12 sons went down to Egypt in search of food, they stayed in Egypt, several hundred years went by, and eventually they became enslaved to the Egyptians. Around 400 BC, God raised up a man named, sorry, around 1400 BC, God raised up a man named Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, They went to the promised land. It was Joshua who led them into this promised land, this place where Abraham had originally gone. And at this point, the nation of Israel consisted of 12 tribes of men and women who were descendants of the sons of Jacob. These 12 tribes occupied the promised land for 400 years without a king. They were ruled by a series of judges. And then in 1080 BC, Israel cried out for a king and God gave them a king named Saul. Then after that, the king was David. And then after that, it was uh, David's son, Solomon. For 120 years, these, these 12 tribes were united together in one kingdom. Then if you were here last week, you saw where Rehoboam, Solomon's son, made the decision to reject the advice of the elders, to reject the request of the people, and it split the kingdom in two. The northern kingdom consisted of ten tribes. The southern kingdom consisted of two tribes. The tribe of Judah, which is a large tribe, and then a smaller tribe named Benjamin. 
the, inside Judah is a city of Jerusalem, and King Rehoboam ruled over Jerusalem and ruled over Judah. The first king of the northern kingdom over these ten tribes was a king named Jeroboam. In the days leading up to Jeroboam becoming king, the Lord made this promise to him, to this new king of this new kingdom. It's in 1 Kings chapter 11. You can see this on your screen. If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. Seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Follow me. Trust in me. Obey my commands. And if you do this, I will give you an everlasting dynasty. Jeroboam heard this promise of God. He clearly heard this command of God. But then on about day one of his reign, his faith in God started to waver. And this was the issue for Jeroboam. This was the test of his faith. Jewish law required all men in Israel three times a year to go to Jerusalem and worship in the temple. Uh, Deuteronomy 16 makes this very clear. You can see this verse on your screens. Three times a year... All your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, which was Jerusalem, at the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. There are three celebrations mentioned here. Uh, the first is the festival of unleavened bread. We commonly call that Passover. It happens in the spring every year. It was during Passover when Jesus was crucified. The next is the festival of weeks, which takes place 50 uh, days after Passover. And so it is often called Pentecost because it happens 50 days after Passover. It was at Pentecost where Peter stood and he preached a sermon and 3,000 people were saved and the church of Christ was born uh, on Pentecost. The third celebration that's mentioned is the festival of tabernacles. It's sometimes called the Festival of Booths. It happens in the fall, and it's a celebration of the end of the harvest. And it was on the last day of this festival this year when Hamas brutally attacked Israel and nearly 2,000 people lost their lives. Three times a year, on these three separate occasions, the men of Israel were to go up to Jerusalem to the temple to worship the Lord. Jeroboam knew this command. He knew this clear command of God. However, he feared that men from the northern kingdom would go to the southern kingdom where Jerusalem was located, and they would go there to worship, and they would look around, and they would see Solomon's temple, and they would see the palace, and all the grand buildings in Jerusalem, and they would think, why did we ever leave this place? Why did we form a separate kingdom? Why did we ever rebel against Rehoboam? We need to be reunited with the southern kingdom. Jeroboam feared that they would leave him and he would be killed because the people would want to go back to Rehoboam. So Jeroboam devised a plan. He said to the northern kingdom, 
It is way too much for you to have to go all the way to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. That, that is too much of a burden for you. In fact, it's, it's very inconvenient for you to have to do this. So here, we're going to make some changes. And here are the changes that we, we will make. And you can see this on your message map. Jeroboam did four things. Number one, Jeroboam gave the Israelites new symbols of worship. Look at verse 28. This is what we read. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. I want you to notice the first thing here. It said, after seeking advice, he did this thing. This was not a spur of the moment sin. This was not a reaction to some temptation. This was a premeditated sin. It was planned after much advice, after thinking on it, after sleeping on it, after spending time considering it, Jeroboam said, well, I'm going to go my way instead of God's way. Uh, what was it that he did? Well, here specifically, he gave the Israelites new symbols of worship. Most scholars believe that his original intention wasn't for people to worship these golden calves. Rather, he just wanted to give them something tangible that they could point to. Because all the nations around them had gods that were made of wood or made of precious metals, and they could point and say, look, there's my God. That's who I worship, and the Israelites couldn't do that. They said, my God's invisible, and they did not have a tangible sign of their God. And so he gave them these golden calves, and they were to say, well, my God actually sits on top of those golden calves, and that is who I worship. The problem is, quickly, the golden calves became the idols. Instead of worshiping God, they began to worship these golden calves. Uh, one of those altars was in a place called Dan. In 2019, when I was in Israel, uh, I got to go to Dan and actually see this altar. Here's a picture of it you'll see on the screen. Uh, this is the remains of one of the altars of Jeroboam. It would have been much higher. Obviously, it would have had a golden calf on top at the time. Uh, but th this is there. The other one, uh, as far as I know, is no longer, um, is no longer around, no longer there. Um, it was an incredibly beautiful structure. And I, I'm sure that people love being able to go and see this tangible sign of the God that they were supposedly going to worship. Problem is, they began to worship these golden calves. So not only did Jeroboam give them a new symbol, here's the second thing, you can write this in. Jeroboam gave the Israelites new locations for worship. Uh, verse 29, so one of these altars he set up in Bethel, and the other he set up in Dan. Uh, there's a map that you'll see right here. It shows where Bethel and Dan were located. Bethel was in the southernmost part of the northern kingdom. In fact, not far from Jerusalem, which is in the northern part of the southern kingdom. Dan was located at the very top of Israel. So wherever someone lived in Israel, there was a convenient place for them to go and worship, either north in Dan or south in Bethel. 
Again, Dan was one of the sites that I was able to visit when I was in Israel, and it is a beautiful place. Much of Israel is, is rocky terrain, but not Dan. It feels like you're in a state park in North Georgia. We had to park a couple of miles away from the ruins of this altar, and we walked on these trails that went over a creek that feeds into the Jordan River, and beautiful trees were all around. It was a very serene setting. It was beautiful. It was convenient. The Israelites were able to go and to worship God either uh, in Dan, which may have been convenient if they lived in the north, or in Bethel if they lived in the south. By the way, American Christians would have loved living under Jeroboam. He made it easy for us, right? We love, as American Christians, convenience. We love worship that is easy. We want God and we want salvation, but not if it costs us anything, not if it's too hard, not if we have to sacrifice, sacrifice our time or sacrifice effort or sacrifice money. We would have loved Jeroboam. If you're listening by podcast right now, or if you're watching on video, you need to know I did not receive a single amen after I said everything that I just said. <laughs> now, it's convicting, isn't it? I mean, we are much more like the Israelites than we care to admit. We, we like our God to be a convenient God. So Jeroboam gave the people new symbols of worship. He gave them new locations for worship. And number three, Jeroboam gave the Israelites a new priesthood. Look at verse 31. It says, Jeroboam built shrines on high places. And what did he do? He appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. The text is very clear here that Jeroboam appointed priests from, all, priests from all sorts of people even though they were not Levites. Why is that important? Because the priests were supposed to come only from the tribe of Levi. In fact, Levi was not given any land in the promised land. God made it clear. Your inheritance is the Lord. So you are the priest. You are the ones who will run the religious services. You are the ones who will sacrifice the animals. The Levites are to be the priest. The problem for Jeroboam was all the Levites went with Rehoboam. They stayed in Jerusalem. They stayed in the temple. And so Jeroboam looked around and he had these new altars. He had these new locations for worship. He just didn't have any preachers or pastors to lead the worship services. He didn't have any priests to perform the sacrifices. And so what did he do? He just appointed priests from any tribe. He was like Oprah on one of her great giveaway shows. You get to be a priest and you get to be a priest and you get to be a priest. He just haphazardly randomly appointed priests, which clearly went against God's instructions. So Jeroboam gave the people new symbols for worship, gave them new locations for worship. He appointed a new priesthood. And then finally, Jeroboam gave them a new religious calendar. Notice what verse 33 says. On the 15th day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, not the Lord's choosing, but his choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival 
festival for the Israelites, and he went up to the altar to make offerings. So Jeroboam picked a month of his own choosing, not God's choosing, and he created a festival. He instituted a festival. Why in the world did he do that? Why did he think he needed to do that? He didn't. There was no need for him to create a new festival. God made it clear. These are the three festivals where you're supposed to come and worship me. And Jeroboam said, no, I'm going to create a brand new holiday. So at the end of the day, through all of this, here's what we see. Jeroboam did not do it God's way. He did it his way. Okay, a couple of things to point out in the passage, and then we'll get to our application. One is this. I want you to see God's response to Jeroboam's actions. When you turn over to chapter 14, here is God speaking directly to Jeroboam about these things that he did. He said, you have done more evil than all who live before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols of metal, you have aroused my anger and turned your back on me. Now, I want you to imagine for just a moment that God came to you and said, you have done more evil than anyone who has ever lived before you. That would get your attention, right? You mean I'm the worst ever God? Yes, you've done more evil than anyone who has ever lived on this planet before you. And I don't know about you, but I would immediately repent God, what do I need to do? I'm so sorry. Jeroboam did not do that. Jeroboam continued in his evil ways. Even though God came and confronted him and said, you have done more evil, you have aroused my anger, Jeroboam continued to do evil. Why? Because there comes a point in our lives where we can turn from God and turn from God and turn from God and we harden our hearts even if God comes to us in an audible voice or even if we are on our deathbed. We at that point can no longer repent. Romans chapter 1 paints this picture of a disobedient world. And in the context of Paul, the writer of Romans, talking about people rebelling against God and being disobedient and continuing to run from God, in the context of that, Paul gives what I think is the scariest verse in all of the Bible. Romans 1.24, where it says, so therefore God gave them over to their sin. Do you get the impact of that verse? It is God saying, you don't want anything to do with me. You have rebelled against me. You have been disobedient. Fine, then go your own way. Fine, if that's what you want to do, then I will let you have the consequences of your sin. And it's not that anyone is ever beyond the grace of God. Anyone who repents will receive the grace of God. However, there comes a point where we can rebel and rebel and rebel and rebel and our hearts become hard to God. That is exactly what happened to Jeroboam. Here's the second thing I want to highlight in this passage. There were 19 kings in total in the northern kingdom. All 19 kings did evil in the eyes of the Lord. You go through the list and the writer tells us on every one of those 19 kings, he did evil, he did evil, he did evil. On all of the kings except for three, on 16 kings, those kings are compared to Jeroboam. 
In fact, his own son, here's what we read, 1 Kings 15. It says about his son, Nadab, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of his father, Jeroboam, committing the same sin his father had caused Israel to commit. Then you go to the next king, Basha. Here's what it says. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of Jeroboam, and committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. And then you keep going. And his great-grandson, and great-great, and great-great. And every time it refers back to Jeroboam. Not their father, not their grandfather, but all the way back to Jeroboam. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jeroboam had done. Here's my point. Jeroboam set a pattern for all of the kings of Israel. For generations to come, they would do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I do not care how old you are. You are an ancestor to someone. To someone maybe who is yet to come, you are an ancestor. And the choices that you make in following the Lord will potentially affect generations to come. This is especially true for men. There's just something about it. Dads who follow the Lord most often will have children who follow the Lord. Dads who do not follow the Lord most often will have children who do not follow the Lord. Men have this weight of knowing that the choices that we make will so often set a pattern that can last for generations to come. Jeroboam did that for his family and ultimately for the northern kingdom by setting a pattern of evil that existed for generations. Here's what we see when we look at this passage. Jeroboam faced what he thought was a problem. And instead of trusting in God, he took matters into his own hands. Or let's phrase it another way. Jeroboam saw what was a big problem to him, but was not a problem at all for God. Jeroboam looked around and said, if I obey the Lord, if I encourage the Israelites to obey the Lord, they will go to Jerusalem. They'll look around in Jerusalem and they will say, there's no reason for us to be loyal to Rehoboam. We just need uh, to Jeroboam. We need to stay here with Rehoboam. We need to reunite the kingdom, kill Jeroboam. We'll come back here to, to, uh, to Jerusalem, to Judah. We'll reunite as a kingdom. He just assumed that would happen. As if God's not big enough to protect Jeroboam from that happening. Jeroboam looked around and he saw this problem, but instead of saying, God, I'm going to trust you in this, he decided to fix it himself. So, so many times when I preach, I'll come to you and I'll say, okay, here's three application points. Here are four things you need to know about this passage. This is a one-point sermon. There's one application point, and you see it at the bottom of your message map there. Here it is. Instead of solving the problem, embrace the promise. That is what Jeroboam should have done. Instead of trying to fix, work out, manage the problem himself, he should have embraced the promise. Jeroboam, if you will follow me, if you will obey my commands, if you will walk in my ways, then I will give you a dynasty that will last forever. He didn't. Instead, he said, I've got to fix, I've got to work out, I've got to manage this problem on my own. So many times we do the exact same thing. So many times instead of embracing the promise, 
We try to solve the problem. Now, let me give you several examples. Here is a command, a very clear command from the Bible. 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? There is a command. And certainly you can apply this a number of ways, but we would say in the marriage relationship, this is very clear. That Christians should not be yoked together with unchristians. But there's a problem. God, you haven't sent one my way. God, there's a problem. I'm looking around and there's no good Christian guys left. There's no good Christian girls left. And yet, here's this non-Christian, and he's really nice, or she's really pretty. So God, instead of embracing the promise, I'm going to solve the problem, and I'm going to try to work it out myself. Here's another verse. This is Proverbs 1.19. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. So there's a job offer, and the job offer will cause you to compromise on your values, you know, shouldn't take it, but God, I've got to provide for my family. I've got to have a way to make a living. God, so I'm going to solve the problem. Instead of embracing the promise, I will solve the problem. Here's another one. Malachi chapter 3. Here's what we read. God said to Israel, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. There may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. So here's the promise. If you will tithe, then I promise you, I will care for you. Yeah, but God, there's a problem. At the end of the month, I don't have enough money. So I'm going to try to solve it myself. Rather than embracing the promise, I'm going to solve the problem. Here's another one. Philippians 4, chapter 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So God, I'm facing a problem. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to worry about it. But the Bible says, don't worry. It's not a suggestion. It's not an alternative. It's not, hey, think about this. It's a command. Do not be anxious. Do not worry. Well, God, I'm going to take this and I'm going to worry it to death. No, don't worry. Pray about it. I'd rather just worry about it. And instead of embracing the promise... We instead try to solve the problem. Listen to me. There is such incredible freedom. When you say to God, God, I am going to trust you completely. And if your word says it, I will do it. And then I am trusting you for the outcome. How do we do that? Instead of solving the problem, we embrace the promises of God. Let's all do that together. <laughs> 